James says, draw close to God and he will draw close to you. And so, but also as a body, I, I'm hopeful in prayer that uh, we may be divinely inspired tonight, um, inspired to reach our community with the message of his glorious grace, which is the theme here, his grace, and uh, with our witness, our evangelism efforts, and, and the spirit and the mindset of, of Mission Week. So the, uh, the epistle of Galatia to the Galatia church was written by Paul. And uh, as we're half, over half the books in the New Testament were written by Paul. So we kind of get the impression that he's uh, an important kind of guy. And uh, indeed he is. Paul needs no introduction, I'm sure, here. Uh, but out of the many le letters, the epistles he wrote, uh, there are a number of experts People smarter than me, I, I, won't, I wouldn't say I necessarily ascribe to this idea, but uh, there are scholars who feel that the book of Galatians is one of the most important in Scripture, and, uh, and certainly the ones penned by Paul. And so it's viewed sometimes as a short book to Romans, like a shorter version of Romans. And we won't spend much time on the letter to Galatia in the broad sense, but basically Paul in this letter is, is bringing to defense the grace of Christ. In the gospel. All right. And one of the main concepts being dealt with here is the whole issue of law and grace. And so we're going to deal with the error having to do uh, with law and grace. The particular form of error is known by theologians or scholars as uh, the Judaizers. All right. And we may understand it better as the legalists or legalism. Uh, but we need to understand the Judaizers. In some cases, were not necessarily bad people. They were Jewish Christians, some of them. They just had strong views that were wrong and uh, were so critical that Paul really deals with it in Galatia in the story in Acts that we'll cover too. And so legalism, which is what we're going to talk about, takes the heart of Christianity and, and replaces it with a heart of stone. And if you know any legalist... I'd say by the, by the biblical standard, not, not our naive assessments of a legalist, not anyone who has a higher standard than me as a legalist. This is, uh, you know, in the scriptural sense, a legalist is generally someone who would be pretty cold, to tell you something. But anyways, the heart of a, a born-again believer is God's grace through Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, what we do with the law is it's honorable work of showing us our sin. Because the law cannot save us. Salvation does not come by the law. And before we get into any of this, we have to understand that uh, there is no salvation available except by grace. And um, what is grace? What do you call that? Unmerited favor. That's exactly what I would have said. So, grace plus, well, nothing is salvation, right? If you add to grace, what does it become then? Works, wages, right, efforts. And we're going to focus on that a bit as we examine Galatians 2. It's strange how when we try to explain this concept, these ideas of grace, it's pretty simple in, in, in the vernacular. But it, it is it becomes one of the most difficult concepts to really accept and to appropriate in, in our faith. And we'll go through the study tonight. Hopefully we'll all nod and leave in agreement and go about our business in maybe a month or year 
or even 24 hours from now, the issues that we'll talk about will somehow ensnare us again. But uh, to kind of introduce us, I have this cute little story I heard in preparation. It's not a biblical story, but it makes a nice illustration. There's a guy, a Christian who dies, and, um, or just a guy, he goes to heaven, right? And he's greeted by an angel or whoever at the gates. And the man asks the angel there, what do I have to do to get in? The angel says, no problem, you just need 100 points. 100 points, and uh, okay, well, the man says, I was a, I was a capitalist, I gave away millions of dollars um, to the church and to charity to feed the poor, and the angel says, very good, uh, you need 100 points, that's good for two points. So, what else you got? The man says, I was faithful to my wife for 60 years, we had a great marriage, we honored the Lord, and uh, the angel says, all right, well, that's very good, good for two points. And so the man goes through his whole life, he inventories all of his works and efforts, and he basically ends up with 12 or 14 points. And uh, the man says, well, how many do I need again? 100, I guess. Well, I guess the only way I'm getting in is by the grace of God. And the angel says, come on in. <laughs> so it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a story, silly story, but uh, it makes the point of grace and now one of the passages in, in context to Galatians 2, and this is how I kind of bounced off of uh, Acts, because we have been studying Acts in the student ministry. We specifically have been in uh, um, chapter 15. So Acts chapter 15 is a very key event in Scripture, if you're familiar. Most people refer to this episode as the council in Jerusalem. Is anybody familiar with that? Good. All right, we're just going to get a flavor because it, it is um, it's the background, basically, for this whole letter, but especially chapter 2 of Galatians. So Acts 15, we're going to take a cursory glance and, and uh, hit not all the verses, but some. Uh, and again, I hope you're familiar with this, but we'll cover enough. Verse 1 says, A certain man came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the main issue here. The Judaizers are teaching Christians, Gentile Christians, that to be circumcised is a condition for salvation, which is wrong, right? That was wrong in the early church. That was wrong. It is wrong today. Uh, we need to understand, though, the influence here, uh, because under this pretense, a lot of Gentiles were being swayed into this gospel, this false gospel. All right? Uh, if you were a Gentile in the Old Testament era and you came to know the Lord, what would you do? What would you have to do? You'd have to convert to Judaism, right? Become a Jewish convert. In the earliest days of the church, which we are heirs of, uh, it was led by Jewish leaders, Right? They read from a Jewish Bible. Those are the roots of the church, right? So the early church was made up of Jews that were freed in the gospel of Christ when they got saved. Their message started going out to the Gentiles, and they were given to understand under the, the pretenses that the Gentiles, in order to be saved by Christ, yeah, you have to convert to Judaism, get circumcised, and whatever. So the people, the Jews that insisted on this these conditions were known as the Judaizers. 
All right, meaning they are Christians. They really wanted the Jews or Christians to live like they did. And in fact, they even had the tendency to view Christianity as like an offspring or just a derivative of Judaism itself. Paul is going to point out the error in all of this, but the, the concept for us, it may sound like it's, well, you know, that's Jewish. We're not Jews. Um, so it's like a technicality in their culture, right? And what's that got to do with us? Well, a great deal, as it turns out, and we'll discuss. But anyway, there are, or there were, these who were teaching that you had, again, to be circumcised in order to be saved. But not only that, the whole, you know, they were under the whole idea that they were under the law of Moses, the ceremonies and worship and all that. All right. Holding the mic is an extra challenge I wasn't expecting. So diet, obviously, is a big part of their... But, um, so you get the idea. That was the, that was the, that was the, uh, the, the motive, the effort by the Judaizers to bring new Christians back under the law. Anyways, back in Acts chapter 15, verse 2, he says, Therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, talking about the Judaizers. And they determined Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this church, about this question. The Jerusalem was the headquarters for the church at the time. So they're going to take the issue, they're going to escalate, and, and, and uh, the elders of the church will deal with it. Now, we'll skip a uh, verse, we'll pick up in five. It says, But some of the sect of Pharisees who believed rose up, saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. All right, so these were the Pharisees that believed. They became believers. Um, they got saved. Like Paul, right? Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees, and he got saved. Now, the apostles and the elders came together, verse 6, to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Take note that Peter is there. He's a big part of the background when we get into Galatia, the letter to Peter rose up and said, Men, brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And um, if you remember what he's referring to is back, what Peter's referring to in this passage is back in Acts 10. This was um, the effect or... or, or what happened after he had experienced a vision on the rooftop with Cornelius, and uh, this is when God declared the door open of the gospel message to the Gentiles. All right, this is a big deal in our uh, in the in the historical timeline. So, uh, is is everybody familiar with that episode, Acts 10? Good. All right, and uh, so, anyways, back in Acts 15, verse 9, he said, He made no distinction between us and them, the Jews and the Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? In other words, why put the Gentiles under the same law that the Jews couldn't keep themselves, is the point, right? That's what he's saying. Verse 11, we believe that through grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they, which... I think it's really cool that Peter said it that way, because you notice there's a clever turn of phrase. It's not that the Jews 
or the Gentiles will be saved as the Jews. It's the Jews that will be saved like the Gentiles, right? It's because it's the same gospel message. And uh, it goes on, Paul and Barnabas, they share some stories and miracles that God worked um, through them among the Gentiles. It comes to James eventually, and um, he quotes from Amos 9. Uh, we won't go into all that. Uh, but in verse 19, uh, what he does say is, uh, Therefore I judge that we shall not trouble the, those among the Gentiles, from among the Gentiles, who are turning to God, but write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, and things strangled, and from blood. So basically, what happened is the council authenticates the basis that Paul, Bar, um, Barnabas, and, and Peter, and we'll read Titus is there too, uh, they've been arguing that a Gentile um, is not under the law, right? There's a few things that they encourage them to observe, but they're not under the law, and then they wrote a letter to let everybody know, all right? That is the backdrop for Galatians 2. This is what Paul is going to be referring to in the beginning of his letter. There's obviously a lot more discussion about what happened here. So again, if you're not familiar with that scene, uh, that's just a, a quick introduction. Uh, but let's get back to Galatians, or let's get into it. Um, we're going to talk all about law and grace here in a minute. Uh, to appreciate the law in Scripture, though, we can dramatize that some. And... Uh, in order to do so, let's look at Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 through 36. This is a short, brief, but instructive, slightly disturbing passage. Helps get a proper perspective of the law. Verse 32, Numbers 15. Now the children of Israel were in the wilderness. They found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. So he gathered sticks on the Sabbath. What? Oh, no. What, what's wrong with that again? Work on the Sabbath, right? Yeah. That's a no-no. So did he get probation or community service? No. Verse 33 says, And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to the congregation. They put him under guard in prison because it had not been explained what should happen to him. 35, Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside in the camp and stoned him with stones. And he died. Does, uh, does that bother anybody? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, bothers me. Why do you think God handled it that way? Right, I mean, clearly he is making the point that he takes that law seriously. He means what he says about it, all right? And that's an extreme example, but there are others. In Deuteronomy 21.18, for time's sake, we'll... Um, Skip the passage, but we see a, a, a son that's put to death. He's stoned, a rebellious son. So even rebellious children were stoned. And that's an example in Deuteronomy 21. But when we get to the New Testament, what happened to the prodigal son? He was welcome-homed, right? So you, you kind of, obviously, you perceive some type of difference there, right? And, and under the law, you sense one thing, but under Christ, you sense another. 
And there are more examples. And let's see, Leviticus 20, verse 10, there's an adulterer that is stoned. That probably doesn't surprise us much. But in John 8, verse 11, there's an adulterer brought to Christ. And what does he tell her? Go and sin no more. So you see the difference in the dealing or the dispensation, if you see it like that. Law versus grace. Law one, or excuse me, Psalm 119 tells us all about the majesty of the law for those who want to specialize that in that. Psalm 119. But to summarize, Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. And that's why uh, an imperfect man cannot keep it, right? Law versus grace. Law, the law, is holy. And that's why sinners are condemned by it. The law is just, and that's why it cannot show mercy to the guilty. The law prohibits, but grace invites and gives. The law condemns the sinner, but grace redeems the sinner. The law reveals sin, but grace atones for sin. The law is the knowledge of sin, by grace is the redemption from sin. The law was given to Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law demands obedience. Grace bestows and empowers us to obey. The law says do and do not. Grace says it is done. The law says continue to be holy. Grace says it is finished, totalistai. The law curses, grace blesses. The law slays a sinner, grace gives a sinner life. The law shuts every mouth before God, grace opens the mouth to praise God. The law condemns the best man, grace saves the worst man. The law says pay what you owe, grace says I freely forgive you all. The law says the wages of sin is death, but grace says the gift of God is eternal life. The law says the soul that sinneth shall die. Grace says believe and live. The law was done away in Christ. Grace abides forever. The law puts us under bondage, but grace sets us at liberties as sons of God. That was um, in some of the notes of the commentary I came through. I'd be happy to share that with you. Um, really puts it in perspective. Uh, one of the points I do want to get across, though, in uh, Galatians 2, and, and also the issue in Acts 15, again, is the Judaizers. That's the issue. I presume, though, this keeping of the law of Moses really isn't a burning issue amongst most of us, right, in this room. Um, but in some way, all of us, in some capacity, will put ourselves under the bondage, under this bondage. And that's called religion, right? Has anybody seen the movie yet, uh, Jesus Culture? In film? No? Oh, yeah. Me neither. Uh, I, I, I understand, though, the premise of the film is that, that one of the great discoveries of the young people in the 70s of the, the Jesus movement was the discovery that Jesus was the most anti-religious person that ever lived. Religion is doomed to failure because it is man's attempt to reconcile himself to God. We cannot reconcile ourselves to God. We don't have the capacity as unrighteous beings uh, to reconcile ourselves to a holy God. 
That's what religion tries to do in whatever ceremony or ritual it would impose on us. Uh, and the more we are aware of our corruption and our shortcomings, without grace, the more demands we would allow to be put upon us to try to reconcile that chasm. But we can never make it. That's why we need grace, right? All right, so the point isn't for us, it may not be circumcision, right, as in Judaism. As we look um, into this, there are legalists, like I said, legalists within the church even that aren't necessarily unbelieving. Maybe they're just misbelieving. All right, but there are legalists that are more like ritualists, the ones that are not born again, that would tell you you have to keep this ritual to be saved or to be a part of the church. That's a broad perspective, but I'm, I'm sure maybe some of your families or some of your previous churches or denominations you've come from, you've heard this. There may be things that are worthwhile to seek or avoid, uh, but that's not the point of what we're talking about. Motivation is the issue here. And so there are groups and churches that make huge deal and, and, and issues over the style and the presentation of worship or their observances, the ceremonies, or what translation of scripture to use. These things do matter, but none of them contribute to our salvation, right? All right, your, our salvation was, is complete. It was done in full, paid in full on the cross. All right, so... Um, I think that's, uh, that's enough to set us up. Let's look at Galatians 2. And we finally made it to the text. And uh, obviously we're not going to be exhaustive about the text tonight. So We'll take Galatians 2, verses 1 through 3 first. Paul says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preached <clears throat> among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, that would be the church leaders, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So in other words, Paul is recalling his journey to the council at Jerusalem that we talked about from Acts 15. This says He says 14 years after this, He's talking, probably, there's debate on that, it doesn't matter. He's probably talking about his first visit to Jerusalem, 14 years after that. He mentions Titus, though. He says he's taking him with him. You can probably imagine what their conversation was like, because Titus is a Greek. He's a Gentile. He's uncircumcised. They're going into, well, they're going to Jerusalem, the, the headquarters of the Judaizers, so to speak. And they're going to settle this. They're going right into the cauldron. And... Um, Titus is with his testimony exhibit A. All right? They're going to settle this once and for all. And I think that's kind of revealing about the nature of their relationship. And um, they were in it together. They had a unity. And Titus says he wasn't swayed by this gospel. Um, they were there, him and Paul, Barnabas, were there to, do, uh, to dismantle it and to correct it. Verse 4. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage 
Now, he's talking about the non-believing Judaizers here, the Christians or the, Judea, the Jews that want to bring Christians back under the law. Verse 5, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He did not tolerate their nonsense even for an hour. Verse 6, but from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, makes no difference to me, God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me, which is kind of a funny statement of Paul's if you understand his personality and his attitude there. So basically, he, the, the, the Pharisees, the Judaizers, had no revelation. They imparted nothing on Paul. He left there with the same gospel he came with. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And so this is one of his infamous run-on sentences here. Uh, we'll touch on this briefly because if you don't know, earlier I referred to Acts 10, right? And that was when God opened... He revealed the, the, the gospel message to the Gentiles through Peter, all right, in Acts 10. That happened at Joppa, all right, and there was a vision of a sheet and other animals. He goes, they go from there to Cornelius, and again, at the end of the chapter, the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles, all right? Uh, that's what Paul is alluding here to, well, after that, they had a mutual agreement, of the, uh, the divisions of their labor, basically how they were going to carve up the world. They had the same gospel. You, ha you take your gospel this way, I'll take it mine. The gospel for the uncircumcised is the Gentiles, and the gospel for the circumcised is the Jews. But there is no difference between the gospel, right? Uh, the gospel to the Gentiles was just really, it was Paul's mission. It started with Peter. Um, he was the one that opened it to the Gentiles, but... Um, he was later charged with the gospel to the Jews or the circumcised. Does that make sense? Good. All right, verse 9. When James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Again, they, they mutually agreed on how they would go about their missions. Same gospel, you go your way, I go mine. And it's kind of important just to kind of set up the point for the next verse that follows, because Peter has the same gospel as Paul. All right, we may not be as familiar with quoting Peter's gospel per se, but where would you go in Scripture to find that? Where do you find the gospel according to Peter? Yeah, that's a good <laughs> Good place to start. Yeah. Um, where was Peter's first sermon? Pentecost, right? Um, you'd find that in Acts 2. You'd also find sermons by Peter in the subsequent chapters 3, 4, and then obviously Acts 10 we talked about. Uh, but Peter's epistle, his first of Peter, the, uh, the, his first epistle, chapter 1, he, you would see, he's writing to Jewish converts. Again, you find the same gospel. Um, in verse 38 and 39 of Acts 2, Peter says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive 
the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they have the same gospel. There is one subtle difference if you're into soteriology, like my friend Dale. Paul goes into, he goes a little deeper, talks about justification. Um, and uh, Peter doesn't really get that profound for us. But uh, there is this dispute here in verse 11 that's going to be instructive for us. Peter says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Now, um, this is where Paul will you know, retell his, this, this moment. He stood Peter down in public for his conduct. And uh, it's interesting, he's, you know, there's, there's no subservice to Peter. He's just a brother in, Lord, uh, in the Lord to Paul. He's not a senior. Um, verse 12, for before certain men came from James, James is the church in Jerusalem, not the individual James he's talking about, he would eat with the Gentiles. So in other words, before these guys that showed up from Jerusalem, um, before they got there, Peter was in fellowship with the Gentiles. He was probably eating a ham hoagie, right? Salami sandwich stuff. <laughs> Squirrel stew. Um, I don't know if he was doing that, but um, you know, he is mixing with the Gentiles because he is free in Christ. He knows he has that freedom and he fellowships with them. Breaking bread with company in the ancient world Gonna make you 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 were in one accord, right? You were one. You had unity with those people. Paul is commending him for that, but uh, that was until these certain men came from Jerusalem. He says, "But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, fearing those the the Jews." He was, in other words, his Jewish brothers. He didn't want to embarrass himself um, before them, so he adopted the the classical distancing of a Jew from a Gentile. And verse 13, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas, who was a good guy, that was Paul's guy, went everywhere with him. That, you know, Peter's infectious attitude compelled even Barnabas to, you know, embarrassment. And um, he's a Christian. He's acknowledged as a Christian, but they did not evidence their freedom from the law of being in Christ. He adopts the, this posture of, of segregating themselves. Paul's criticizing them for that. Verse 14, he says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, Before them all, if you, being a Jew, you live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why are you compelling Gentiles to live as Jews? Do you see the hypocrisy? You have freedom amongst the Gentiles because of Christ. And now you're self-conscious and behaving like you're back under the law, which has even compelled their brethren um, to live like a Jew. And um, another subtle point here, it's a little sobering. Paul didn't really spare Peter's feelings in public, right? It's not like he said, hey, can we talk about this? It's, um, it was... Spoken in love, I would hope. Paul talks about that. Um, but I think it is comprehensive. Later in, in Peter's writings, as he's closing things out, he's, he refers to Paul as a brother in the Lord. He even authenticates his writings as scripture. And uh, so, yeah, we can learn something in that and how the dispute was handled. That's probably not easy for any of us to have um, 
deal with that, but um, very instructive. Verse 15, we who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. He says, we're Jews. We know that no man can be justified by the law. We can't keep the law. The law condemned us. We couldn't keep it. Our flesh wants or desires something or some way to be worthy before God. Our pride is directly connected to it, our flesh. And that's why legalism is a form of carnality, I think. When we think of carnality, we assume like violence, um, immorality or substances, things like that. Uh, but scripture identifies legalism and self-righteousness as a toxic form of carnality because our flesh and, and it's our pride that desires worthiness, something to be worthy to stand before God. But God puts death to pride, doesn't he? Grace is the death of pride. Verse 17 if, but if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. If Christ therefore, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. <laughs> He's saying to Peter, if you're telling people we're justified by Christ, but then you have to stop eating a pork hoagie uh, to, to get into heaven, then Jesus Christ, is he one who is causing you to sin? No. Paul said also in, in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. All right, moving along. Verse 18, for if I build again these things or those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So if I get saved, I tell everybody I'm free and saved freely in Christ. He has washed me with his blood and provided a righteousness that the law could never provide, slowly but surely, we'll start to put the law back in place and rebuild the things that were tore down. That makes us a transgressor, puts us back under bondage. That's in, 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 and we would do so in, in setting aside the grace of God. Verse 19, for I, though the law died to the law, that I might live to God. For I, excuse me, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. <laughs> that makes more sense. The law of Moses made no provision beyond death, right? There is no capacity to save with the law, and there's nothing it can do for us beyond death. It's interesting, and you think about the circumstances, the law can't try a dead man, Right? If you are in Christ, you're a dead man. You're dead, man. <laughs> if you're, example here, driving down the street and speeding, you, not me, um, and you're going 20 over, and you see the lights from an, uh, a police officer in the back of your 
rearview mirror and uh, your heart starts pumping, you know you're about to get pulled over and you're just so panicked. You pull over, before the officer even makes it to your window, you die of a heart attack, all right? When the officer comes up, does he still write the ticket? Right? Says, all right, you're not getting out of this one that easy, buddy. <laughs> I'll see you in court. Um, no, he doesn't care. He calls an ambulance because you're dead. So Paul puts or develops this in great detail. Romans 7, there's many examples. Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that shall bear fruit to God. Romans 7, 4. All right, that brings us to verse 20. Galatians 2, 20. Here we go. Does anybody else know and love this verse? It's a very famous verse. Yeah. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Crucified. Permanently. And he doesn't say I've been rehabbed or renovated with Christ, right? Some, some of us, you know, some believers, they, they tend to do that. Spend years trying to rehabilitate the old man. Paul said in Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. You can't rehab the flesh. You can't negotiate with the old man. You must be crucified. If you are with Christ, the old man is dead and died with him 2,000 years ago on a cross in Jerusalem. With all of our future sins, Put on the Lamb of God and His blood. It ran down as the wrath of the Father was poured on Him. All of our sins were atoned for to the satisfaction of God Almighty. And there is nothing left that could be added to it. Amen? That's the biggest challenge tonight. Are you crucified in Him? And if not, today is the day of salvation. Believe and repent. And we have deacons and many individuals here tonight to meet with you. But uh, to close this out, um, Paul finishes the chapter, verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So do not set aside the grace of God. And let's think about that. If, if righteousness could have come through any other conceivable way by the law, then Christ died in vain. Furthermore, his prayers in the garden in Gethsemane were not answered. And I hope you remember that scene in the garden when he prayed three times with such intense conviction. It's described as if he was sweating drops of blood. And I don't know. I, mean, that's, I don't think that's a naive observation. I think we're all sophisticated enough that he actually sweat drops like blood. And... Um, he prayed three times to the Father if there was any, any way. Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He actually prayed three times to accomplish that. If righteousness could come by the law, by instruction, education, better environment, whatever your theory is, um, if you think that can create a path for righteousness, then Christ 
died in vain, and the prayers of the Son to the Father went unanswered. That's heavy stuff. But he did not die in vain, right? We are saved by grace as a free, unmerited gift there for the asking. And again, it's fascinating how simple, basic of an issue it is, but how difficult it can be for us to really fully grasp that we're not under the law. It doesn't matter, um, or that doesn't mean that there are things that are worthwhile and beneficial for us to, to avoid, abstain from, or even to, um, to pursue. But uh, again, motivation is the issue, right? Be careful that we're not adding to what Christ has completed for us already. Any, anything we do unto the Lord is a love gift, a love offering, right? All of our service, of our tithes, offerings, time. All right, and that kind of brings us, I really didn't think I would actually get through the lesson tonight, so praise the Lord. Um, one of the things that happens, this is kind of a, a related subject. This is really why I think I needed this tonight. Um, I'd like to close with, because this happens to all of us. We get comfortable and we understand our salvation. It is by grace and praise God. That's fantastic. But something will happen eventually, if it hasn't, in your lives, where we fall in something and uh, screw up. And that may become devastating or just debilitating in uh, the amount of discouragement and the, the leverage the enemy will use. Um, but when that happens, or if that hasn't happened to you, I, I'm sure, well, first of all, you, I would hope you have much scripture to recall to memory, but one of the things that you could consider, maybe writing down, is this question. And, um, and that is, how many of your sins were yet future when Christ hung upon that cross? And the answer is all of them, right? Every single one of them. We have a mentality where when we hear a, 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 a good, just potent lesson or sermon, we really get convicted of our sin. We see ourselves for as we are. We realize that we cannot, we cannot save ourselves and uh, accomplish anything that Christ did. His salvation is available for those who repent and believe. We accept Christ and we get to the Bible and start studying, or we may have been a Christian for uh, a seasoned saint for years. Um, but... Um, <clears throat> Again, has anyone experienced this dilemma? Thank you. I, um, you know, I've struggled with this a lot lately, if you can't tell. And um, I just, you know, the feeling of like, what am I, what am I doing? Am I really, a, am, I, am I of you, God? Am I, or am I just beyond your reach? And so, if you've had that feeling... Um, or if you do eventually have that feeling. And um, these issues will, be, will, will seem a lot less academic. And uh, again, we'll want to remember at, at that time and those trials that um, the sins that Christ died for on, on the cross, um, all of them were yet future that he paid for. He saw them. God cannot be surprised or disappointed in us, right? He saw it coming. Every sin, and that's why he had to die. The flip side of this is that grace 
is no license to indulge, right? Um, the other fallacy is that sometimes we can straighten our lives out, you know, or clean ourselves up before we come to God, and um, that doesn't work, right? We have no chance of doing that for a lot of reasons. But the good news, the gospel, is the incredible reality that God has an eternity designed for us. It's so fantastic. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. The good news is that he has provided his own eligibility on your behalf. And that's why it is so extreme um, and it's so fantastic. It should become the consuming priority of our life to understand and, and appropriate this glorious grace and to evangelize and, and witness with it. So difficult for us to really understand. It's so incredible. All right. Uh, one last thing I'll close with. So we have still a couple of minutes. It's just a, another story. Um, this makes me appreciate my brother, Jason. Um, yeah. Uh, so there was an elderly couple that passed away roughly about the same time. And um, they're both up in heaven together. And the husband is just saying, just in awe, he's just taking in the magnificent, you know, the glory all around it. He's just, wow, I just, and um, could never imagine just the, the splendor and the things that they're experiencing. And he, and he looks over to his wife and he says, do you realize that if it hadn't been for your whole grains and all your vegetables, we could have been here years ago? <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but that's all I have. Does anybody have any questions or comments before we pray? Yes, Isaac. Excellent. Glory to God. Thank you. Love you. Love you. All right. Um, before I pray, I uh, just wanted to kind of maybe amend an announcement. We are moving the pews tomorrow. Tonight, though, we are one of the things we wanted. I wanted to do was just maybe stage a few. If there's anyone here who can help, we need to get some of the hardware unbolted from the bottoms. Uh, it shouldn't take us long. I don't know how many pews there are here. So, <laughs> Anyways, whoever's available, that would be wonderful if you can stick around. But um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're, we're beholden to you for this time, for this fellowship and the provision of every individual here tonight, all the circumstances you have been working together, the conversations, Lord, and the arrangements that needed to be made. Um, we are all here by divine appointment. We recognize you as the ultimate authority in that, and so we praise you, Lord for giving us the life and the breath to experience this moment in time. And we hope, I pray, that you have been honored and glorified in the music and that your spirit has done a work in the hearts and the lives of us, Lord. As we approach this week, um, ramping up to our mission, 
conference, Lord. We ask that you would just invade our space and occupy our minds, displace the worldliness, Lord, and give us a heart in your eyes for the people around us, Lord. Um, God, we just pray, pray for your work to be done, for your will to have your way, God, in our hearts. May you reign forevermore. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.